Hey everyone, I hope you're having an amazing summer. I know many of you are taking some time off. I'm about to take a little break this week myself. I'm actually getting married, so I thought it'd be the perfect opportunity to re-air one of my favorite episodes from the past with Vicky Sai, the founder of the popular skincare brand Tatcha. I hope you enjoy this week's interview and I'll see you back next week with a brand new episode of the Behind Her Empire podcast. I think that business is not brain surgery. And anybody who tries to make it seem like brain surgery is pulling the wool over your eyes. Hey everyone, I'm Yaza Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Vicki Sai, to our show today. Vicki had a very non-traditional path to eventually founding one of the top skincare companies today, Tatcha. Although she had a very impressive resume and Ivy League schools under her belt, she realized how empty and unfulfilled she felt in her career. She decided to quit her job and travel the world in search of happiness and meaning in her life. In her travels, when visiting Kyoto, Japan, Vicky had a life-changing meeting with a geisha where she learned some of their natural skincare secrets and traditions, which healed her skin as she was dealing with years of acute dermatitis. She credits her time in Japan to have healed her soul in the truest sense and wanted to bring that same experience back with her to the U.S. However, Vicky's success did not come easy. She struggled for years to get the brand off the ground and was over $600,000 in debt at the time. When she started the company, there weren't many direct-to-consumer brands, Asian beauty and skincare wasn't a thing, and no one was interested in clean formulas for their skin. Fast forward to today, Tatcha is available in Sephora and QVC and is the second fastest growing women-led company on the Inc. 5000 list. And last year, Unilever acquired Tatcha for a reported $500 million. Vicky is passionate about giving back and since inception, they've partnered with Room to Read in their mission to educate girls globally and have sponsored over 3 million days of school. Welcome to the show, Vicki. I'm so honored to be here with you. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited that you're here. I really admire who you are as a person and your life story. It's pretty incredible. And also your products. I feel like it's so hard to find any type of clean product that's actually effective. So I'm so glad you brought Tatcha into our world. It's definitely one of my favorites. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to jumping into your story today. So I'd love to start from the beginning. Your parents moved from Taiwan to the U.S. to create a better life for you and your family. You know, how was your life growing up? And looking back, what would you say were some of the key events that have really shaped you into the person that you are today? Oh, that's that's a great question. Um, let's see. I was born in Missouri, um, lived there a couple of years, and then grew up largely between New Jersey and Texas. Um, so whenever people are like, where are you from? I'm like, Missouri. And they're like, no, where are you, wink, wink, from? And I was like, I guess New Jersey. <laughs> well, no, really, Vicky. <laughs> so I don't think my upbringing was, was terribly special or unique. Um, but you're right. My parents did immigrate here right before I was born. Um, and I think like so many first-generation kids who are born in the U.S., we feel a debt of gratitude to our parents for making a sacrifice so that we can have a better life and pursue the American dream. And so that probably colored um, a little bit about how I approached, you know, 
my childhood. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, growing up, you academically did very well, went to great schools, got your first job in Wall Street. And I'm sure in your family's perspective, you were doing incredibly well and you've yes. gained so much success so early in your life. But you mentioned your early adult life was pretty difficult for you. Can you share more about what you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. You know, um, I think until I was 21, I was looking for a very prescriptive approach to success. Um, in large part, I think so I could make my parents proud and and do what we all sort of feel like we're supposed to do here. So you're right. It, it was a lot of it was building a, a pretty resume, whether it was being in the gifted and talented program when we're younger and then getting to the fancy college when you're older um, and then getting the fancy job. And, and I was fine with that. I never questioned it. Then um, when my husband and I were at Ground Zero for 9-11, because we were both working um, uh, right next to the, the towers um, that day, we were 21 then. And so we walked into work that day, you know, with the same mentality as, as I think any young person at that time, which is, you know, do your best, you know, make some money, make your parents proud. And then way down the road, maybe then you think about purpose and giving back and meaning. But that's not something you think about when you're 21. Then after 9-11 and then after, you know, uh, my husband getting sick after that for three years, it shifted our thinking pretty early into seeing our life and seeing how we spend the hours of our life very, very, very differently. And so it's not that I didn't care anymore about making my parents proud or making their sacrifices worth it. I certainly did. And I also felt a debt of gratitude that I had the privilege of a beautiful education, which a lot of people in the world and in America don't have. Um, so I felt this duality where I have a sense of responsibility to make good on, on the opportunities that I've been given. But then on the flip side, to this point, I never really questioned about what do I really want to be when I grow up? I just sort of listened to what everybody else said was successful and said, okay, I'll try to do that then. I'll try, I'll try to make you proud. I'll try to make you proud. I'll try to make you proud. But I never really got to know what I was supposed to do. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that you know, a situation like 9-11 really happening early in your adult life was really the reason why, you know, you and your husband were really questioning things and seeking perspective because you just saw how precious life was. So at that point, you and your husband both wanted to move outside the city. Mm -hmm. And that's when you pursued your MBA at Harvard. And I know at that point, you were still dabbling in different jobs, trying to figure out your purpose. But really, what was your experience like in business school? And you know, how, how was your life afterwards? Sure. If I'm going to be completely honest, I think there was a practical reason for going to business school and then a paper reason. The practical reason was to that point, I had traded credit derivatives. And so it's a very specific skill set where it's not easily transferable to other industries or other functions. So I knew I needed to broaden my skill set. That was a practical reason for going to business school. The paper reason was I knew that I needed to sort of have a mulligan and start over and do the introspective work that I didn't do in, things, in uh, high school or college about like, who am I? What am I good at? What do I want to be when I grow up? And so business school gave me a two-year pass to sort of redo what I didn't do in, in high school and college because um, I was so single-mindedly focused. I never, I never did that exploratory work. I'm sure there's a lot of people, even including myself, who resonate with that so much. And I think 
in your career path, you can get just so stuck in the moment and not even take time to reflect and think, am I even happy? Like, what am I even doing here? <laughs> How did here? I end up here? Yeah. But, you know, some people realize that sooner rather than later. And for you, so you went, you were going to business school. And I believe the first time you really started working in the beauty industry was in an internship that you had. Can you share more about, you know, that internship and really how it framed your perspective on beauty? I had a couple dips into beauty throughout my career before Tatcha um, that I really didn't anticipate doing, but they ended up being quite um, uh, formative in terms of my experiences. The first one, as you said, my mom had a little um, uh, skincare store um, in a Chinatown where I would work on the weekends and help set up the windows and, and help with inventory, and I loved it. Um, so that was sort of my first experience in beauty. And then when I was in business school, I interned um, for a big global beauty brand. And uh, while I was there on my own account, my own fault, I treated my face like a science experiment because I had a corporate card where I could buy any moisturizer and any fancy serum that I want, try it out and help have it help inform our strategy. So I went to town and I, I used it all and I really gave my, my skin um, something to complain about. And that's when I started realizing, mm, you can't abuse your skin. <laughs> but I learned a little bit about the beauty industry, but had not really any interest in the industry and had no intention of going back. Yeah. So like you mentioned, you didn't end up pursuing any career in beauty. And after business school, you got another great job at Starbucks mm -hmm. and you were doing pretty well. But, you know, that experience was pretty pivotal in your life because it mm -hmm. eventually led you down the path of, again, self-discovery. And, um, and, you know, that's how you ended up finding Tatcha. But before all that, can you talk to us about, you know, your professional experience at Starbucks and your life at that time? Yeah. I mean, I had a typical brand manager role at Starbucks. I was really lucky. Um, I got to work on a launch of our um, consumer products business in China. Um, I got to see international business. I, I got to be an entrepreneur, if you will. So within a large organization, pulling on the resources to, to set up a business uh, from scratch. So all of that was really, really intellectually interesting. But I think the experience that I had there that was most formative for me, there was two. One was... Um, uh, working my tail off and really over-delivering on results and um, getting uh, a passable review from uh, a VP who I had almost no exposure to. Um, so that, that was a wake-up call that, you know, if I really want to be a corporate climber, mm -hmm. it's some of what would get me, you know, from point A to point B would be results, which I'm, I'm big on results. But I can tell now another half of that equation would be being political. And it's just human nature. If you're in a large company and you want to be seen and visible, there's, there's an, a certain amount of politicking that you have to do. And I had not done the appropriate amount of politicking in that role because you know, I think I was Pollyannish about, you know, meritocracy and, and work. Um, so I had to sort of sit with myself and say, is that something that I really want to spend a lot of my time doing? Um, so that was one. And then the other thing was Howard Schultz was uh, still involved with the company, the founder and I remember being in a town hall where he was very, very, very passionately expressing his dreams and his values for the company and where he thought we were hitting the mark and where he thought we were failing. He was so passionate. And I just remember thinking, you know, this is already a public company. You've already got a CEO in place. 
and you still care so much and you're not ashamed to show how much you care. And I had never seen anybody care that much about business. And it made me realize that um, I wish I had something I cared that much about because I don't think I've ever done anything that I care that much about. And so that was a really eye-opening experience for me. And then I read his book, Pour Your Heart Into It. And it's one of the best business books that I've ever read. And I recommend it to anybody who's thinking about starting a business. And while the journey was a treacherous one, again, the passion, there was so much passion and purpose there um, that it made me rethink how I I would approach my career after that. Mm -hmm. And as someone, like you mentioned, this was the first time you really were exposed to someone who had such passion and drive in their business. Mm -hmm. How did you kind of navigate that in in your own life to figure out what your passion was after leaving Starbucks? Yes. Um... I, I floated for a little bit, I would say. You know, after that, I, I was recruited out to um, a startup out of Berkeley with these sustainability scientists, and they were scraping the internet data and trying to provide sustainability ratings to consumers on the environmental health and social impacts of their products. And the first uh, vertical that they were launching um, ratings on was personal care. So just completely inadvertently, I ended up back in personal care and I started understanding the issues and limitations around ensuring the safety and efficacy of personal care products in the U.S. And so that was my first kind of aha moment because I still had dermatitis at this point, you know, three years of bleeding and blistering and scaling on my face and my lips and my eyelids. Um, It was painful, very, very, very painful. Um, And so that was a wake-up call from a product perspective. But then in addition to that, um, from a passion perspective, I thought, I don't know if I'm ever going to have much money in life. Um, It's never been a core driver of mine. And to that point, I I had not done a ton of work in the um, nonprofit space, although I did work for a nonprofit for a year before business school. And I've been involved with the uh, nonprofit in the um, children's education space and educational equity space since I was 19. Um, but I just thought, I don't know if I'll ever be rich enough to be a philanthropist. Um, and I know after working in a nonprofit that being a, a program person, you know, wasn't so much my thing. I love business. Yeah. Can I use business as a way to drive social change? Can I make it a mechanism for giving? And at that point, Tom's was pretty new. Mm-hmm. Warby Parker came around soon thereafter. And I started seeing these, these business models crop up where they were unashamed about their passion for making a difference and doing good. And so that's, that's where I started really finding my way of, of you know, there's a, there's a market need. Um, I don't think that there's enough product and options out there for people um, who really want to avoid getting acute dermatitis. <laughs> and then on the flip side, um, I don't, I don't really see beauty, and this is a $64 billion industry at that point in the U.S. alone, I don't really see beauty doing anything to try to give back. And there's a lot of money flowing through that system. So can I create something that's based on truth that makes our clients feel genuinely cared for instead of diminished um, as, as women and as people? Can I make products that are are good for the environment and, and good for our clients. And I would say we've done really well on the juice and we're on our way to doing really well on the packaging. And then can I use the profits that we generate and put that back into something that really matters? And, and for me, the more research I did, the more I realized girls' education is one of the greatest places where you can invest for meaningful social change globally. Mm-hmm. And when I saw this, I was like, this model works. 
the only thing that I don't know if it will work is whether people will ever be interested enough in, in the formulas and the brand. And then, you know, I thought, well, why not? Why not try? It's great to see that when you were, you know, at this startup, you're beginning to really think through what you wanted to create in life, what kind of intention you wanted to build, you know, within this business. But at that point, you still really didn't have a product or an idea of how you're going to bring that to life. So at what point did you even quit that job? And why did you quit? I quit because it was the worst professional experience of my life, honestly. I quit because I was like, I'm not going to go there one more day. Like, I'm just not going to do this. I love everything that they stand for. Um, you know, I, I, I love the people who are working there. But the experience of trying to create a business from scratch, you know, with with people who had never worked in a business before, I was like, this is, I don't have the, I don't have the patience for this. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so I was just completely unemployed without a path at that point. But then it was when I ended up in Japan and I ended up discovering these really, really, really pure, authentic approaches to holistic wellness for your skin, inside out, outside in. And it healed my skin because of the background that I had, because of the models that were coming about. I just thought, one, I need this in my life. There's something about Japan. There's something about Kyoto that keeps healing my skin and healing my soul. And I know there's other people who feel this way. Um, so I'd like to create something for people who, who are looking for this. But then on the flip side, can I flip business on its head and use it for good? So going back a little bit in your story, you mentioned, you know, the startup was a horrible professional experience. You quit, you were unemployed. And I think at that point, you and your husband both had, you know, a total of $600,000 in debt. So, you know, as someone who was unemployed, did you have an intention of, you know, going to Kyoto in Japan to hopefully figure out a new business idea? Or, you know, what really led you down that path of traveling and ultimately coming across this incredible product that really saved your skin and your soul? I think that is one of those things I'll never truly be able to answer. I think a lot of us, when we feel lost, we travel. That somehow if I can't find myself in, in this moment, in this life, Maybe if I take myself out of this situation to, you know, a place that's very foreign um, and um, where, where I, I have no safety net, then maybe that's when I'll find myself. So that's why I started traveling. And I didn't just travel to Japan. I traveled all over Europe. I, you know, I traveled all over. Um, but it was in Japan where even though I had never really spent time there, I'd never been to Kyoto. I knew very little about the culture. Um, all, I, I did feel like I was at home. And... I should say part of why I'm, I might have felt at home is because Japan occupied Taiwan for so long. My family is originally from Taiwan that, you know, a lot of the people in my family speak Japanese natively. They actually have Japanese names. Um, a lot of them work in Japanese companies. And so, um, and I, I spent time in Taiwan as a child, my summers. So there is also a part of it that felt very much at home because it was quite familiar, <laughs> even though I had not been. But overall, the philosophies there and, and the rituals of wellness and skincare, they just, they, they filled these gaps in my, in my heart and in my life that just meant so much to me. And I know on the same trip, you were looking to bring back to the U.S. just for yourself, these blotting papers that you swore by that, you know, have really helped your skin. 
over the years Mm -hmm. and they wouldn't allow you to bring it back. And they sold you, I believe it was Mm -hmm. 10,000 units for 30,000 and you agreed. So I have two questions. First, you know, when you were calling your husband to tell him about this big purchase, what did he think? Because at that point, you know, you didn't have a job. You guys had quite a bit of debt. And number two, did you know that you wanted to create a business out of it? And was that really when, you know, Tatcha started? No, no. At that point, I was really flying by the seat of my pants. I I think there was a part of me that was like, if I think too hard about the financial downside of what could happen, I will be frozen into non-action. And the only thing that I know right now is that I have to keep I have to keep swimming. Remember Dory from Finding Nemo? Just keep swimming, swimming. I was like, I don't know where I'm going, but I know I've got to keep swimming. And so to me, sort of over-focusing on the the financial disaster that was already looming around the corner anyways, it wasn't going to change anything. So I was like, you just keep swimming. <laughs> you got to keep swimming. And did you build that you know, you mentioned you, you were never really motivated by money, but you know, as people who are listening today, did you build that stomach for taking these risks or at the time you were just, it just felt right. And you were just taking one step at a time. Like how did you stomach all that change and risk in your life? I mean, at some point being a hundred thousand in debt, 200,000 in debt, 300,000 in debt, 600,000 in debt, at some point, psychologically, it's all the same. <laughs> you have no money. So I don't think it bothered me beyond a certain point because it was just a fact. You just have no money. Um, but then on the flip side, around that time, because you know I wanted our model from the very beginning to be one that gives back, I went to Cambodia for the first time with Room to Read. And I was with girls from their girls' education program. And they were not that much older than my daughter. My daughter was born the day that we started the company. And I am, I am seeing them thrive and be full of wonder and hope for the future and dreams of what they could be when they grow up and the changes that they want to make in their communities and society as a whole. And yet they didn't have any of the basic things that we have here that we take for granted, including electricity, running water, basic freedoms, rights over their body, parents, um, a bed, nothing. Mm -hmm. And yet they were showing up every day ready to write their own story. And so that also really reframed for me what risk is. And somebody with a Harvard Business School degree and an economics degree and a family from a middle-class background and a husband who has equally strong academic credentials will never starve. Mm -hmm. So why not take a risk and see if you can make a difference in the world? Yeah, that's so beautiful. And I think just so important for our listeners who are predominantly women to hear, because I think sometimes we'll get in our way of taking risks or the way we think about fear kind of stops us from really making a bigger impact that we're capable of. So really just kind of hearing your journey and how you gain perspective yourself is just so helpful and inspiring. Oh, thank you. I think the bigger thing to let go of is not so much getting comfortable with the amount of financial risk. I think the bigger thing is letting go of defining yourself by other people's perceptions of you. Mm -hmm. And so, so many of the people that I've talked to who've dreamt of starting their own companies, what stops them is a fear of if they tell people about their idea and nobody else sees the vision, will they get laughed at? If they step off a corporate track where they're high profile, they work for, you know, a company with a big brand name, they've got a big title. Will people think that they um, couldn't cut it? Um, If it fails, what will people think of them? 
So I would say the number one thing that I had to do as an entrepreneur, and I think most entrepreneurs that I know, is they just had to not let other people's perceptions of them impact their sense of self. And that's so hard to do, but I'm sure with practice it helps. And one thing you mentioned in one of uh, a previous interview you, you did, you said, for me, it was logical. I was 100% unhappy in my career. And then if I wanted to go start and try something new, I just knew 50% chances that I'd be happy. So it's like, why not give it a shot? You the know? odds are in your favor. <laughs> Honestly, on, and when you say it, when you say it so simply, it just you know sparked a light in my head. And you know, I also went through a similar journey, leaving Wall Street. You know, people thought I was crazy, kind of wanting to go on this entrepreneurial path, which is why I started the podcast because I didn't have a network of women I to love really. It. So to, you're creating you know, what you didn't have, and that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. And it helps. And I'm, you know, I'm, I will get into this in your story, but people thought I was crazy. They're like, yeah. you're going to leave this stable job. And once you build your tribe around you, yeah. that's when you can just go flying and just kind of don't look around when you're building, just heads down for a little bit. So exactly. yeah, which is your story. But so you're in Japan, you, you came across these blotting papers that you swore by. So you have a funny story about your engagement ring when you when you were trying to, I guess, find the financing for it. Can you kind of share more about that story? Yes, yes. Um, so yeah, you're right. At that point, we had no money in the bank account. Our um, credit cards were maxed out. Um, I found these blotting papers that I had been using for a couple of years that were super, super helpful with um, helping keep my skin not look too greasy and calm when I have acute dermatitis and I really can't use anything on my face. And um, when I realized that they came from this beautiful tradition, they come from these gold leaf artisans in Kyoto who literally make the gold leaf for the golden temple, the golden pavilion, Lama temple. And um, this, this is sort of the byproduct of their gold leaf hammering process. And, you know, it's, it's use as a, a beauty tool dates back a couple hundred years to, to geisha. That whole thing to me was, it's, it seemed like such a fairy tale that it was almost too good to be true until I'm surrounded by the Goldie Fartisans, their gold and the geisha. And I, I remember thinking, I didn't know that there was still beauty and truth and craftsmanship and all this kind of stuff left in the world. I, I guess I'd become jaded at that point to think that everything is kind of fake. And so when I found something that was real, I was like, oh my God, there's something real in this world. It's so real. It's so beautiful. Yeah. So you sold your engagement ring at the time to to use the funds so I to buy. My husband and said, I, I have to I have to bring these to the U.S., but they're not interested in me bringing them to the U.S. And so they they sort of threw down the gauntlet and said, you can only do this if you can buy basically everything that's here. And um, I, I needed to do it. And so my husband, of course, was ever supportive because that's who okay. he is. I love that. But he said, that's yeah, totally fine. How, um, how are we going to pay for this? And then all I could... All I could see was the ring on my hand. So I said, I'll sell my engagement ring. And that's how we financed it. That's great. You did whatever it took to help, you know, get this business off the ground. And I know at that time when you came back to the States from your trip, you, you know, were beginning to think about the business and you mm -hmm. had multiple jobs to really fund the business. You didn't go down the path of raising money initially. But can you talk to us more about that stage in your life and the types of jobs that you had to really, you know, help make ends meet and start your company? Yes. I was lucky that my husband was still working at a company. And so I was taking sort of every paycheck that he had and, you know, what was left of his bonuses and putting that into the company. 
mm-hmm. and selling whatever left that we had. You know, there would be we had one car left. Okay, sell the car. I think your Herman Miller chair is probably something I can get a few hundred dollars for. Stand up, put that on Craigslist. You know, so we we had sort of sold everything, and but outside of that, we still had living expenses, and I had a baby. Um, so separately, I felt you know a responsibility to my family to to at least be able to pay for some food. Um, and so I just did whatever it took. Um, I called my landlord and, and asked if, if there was any way I could help out with things to get a break in rent. And she was wonderful. So she let me help her rent out apartments. I would, um, I would go to, she had in several buildings. And when somebody said they were moving out, I would show up. I would figure out what needed to get patched or cleaned up. I would take a picture. I'd write those descriptions on Craigslist. You know, charming studio apartment in the marina. Perfect view of blah, blah, blah. Um, do the open houses, do the contract, try to upsell in a parking space. Um, I was also the super for my building. And so if somebody got locked out or their toilet was clogged, I'm the one who got the call. Um, I also did consulting though, and I was lucky I got to do that. So I consulted for beauty retailers, um, some of the larger beauty companies in the world. Um, and I just, I sort of did high, low and in between whatever it took. Whatever it took. No, for sure. And, you know, at that point you were building up the company and then you decided you wanted to do a skincare line, mm-hmm. uh, which is really the, you know, the genesis of Tatcha. Can you walk through kind of how long that took? Because I know it's just not a typical R&D process with what you're building um, and that process, just formulating the initial products. Indeed. We were in formulation for three years. Um, it, it was pretty different than how you would see a beauty brand come to life these days. Um, today you'll see a lot of brands, especially skincare brands, you'll, you'll see a hundred crop up this year, um, where suddenly there's, you know, quite a bit of speed to market and they're white labeling Mm. and there's nothing wrong with that, but by and large, it's the same formula (laughs) just with different people's names on it. And that's how the vast majority, if not almost all of skincare is made in the U S and in the world, unfortunately. Mm. Um, it's also why if you walk into a store, you'll see, you know, oh, everybody has the same cream ish that they're launching. And why is everybody launching the same mascara concept this year? Like, are they all coordinating? No, they're just buying it from a contract manufacturer, putting their name on it. Um, because I was coming from a place of wanting to honor, you know, a heritage that is so built on quality and purity and has hundreds of years of history because I had come from sustainability um, scientists from Berkeley who had taught me so much about the gaps in supply chain and quality and safety um, in the beauty industry because I had my own acute dermatitis. I had been pregnant during that, so you know, I became very sensitive to what I was putting on my skin and in my body. I really felt that we had no choice but to do it the old-fashioned way. So hire my own scientists, build my own team, create everything from scratch like a couture dress, including our key raw materials as necessary. So plant the plant. Um, and do it all from scratch. So that took three years. And even now, you know, sometimes people within our company, as we're growing, will, will struggle. You know, they'll, they'll put something on a launch calendar for a couple years out and say, oh, we're going to launch this then. And I find out about it after the fact. I'm like, but I think the plants are still growing. So I don't think you can launch it then. <laughs> I think the plants are growing. And so we're different. We're really, really, really different than um, the typical R&D and product development cycle of, of a beauty brand. And it was a lot of money. Yeah, I was just about to say, I'm sure it was a lot of money and a lot of time because of the uniqueness of 
you know, the process of what you wanted Mm -hmm. to build. So patience was key. But I'm curious, you know, how did you come across scientists in Japan that even were Mm -hmm. willing to work on something like this? Because even at that time, the manufacturers that you were coming across just thought it was an old school way of creating products and they weren't, you know, too open to working with you and bringing back these traditional skincare products. I was so, so, so lucky. Um, There was a, a few things that worked in my favor. There are a couple major Japanese beauty brands um, in Japan that historically have been known for world-class formulas, world-class packaging, just the best of the best. And then in recent years, you know, probably the last 20 years, as they get ready to go global, they feel like they've got to be competitive with American beauty brands and um, European beauty brands and all that kind of stuff, which means that they, you know, pivot their model a little bit and they stop they stop focusing on product the way they used to, and they start focusing more on distribution and marketing and all that, all the things that you you do need as a, as a large global company to be globally competitive. But then the people who had spent 30 years there creating products that you could only dream of, they're, they're, they don't really have carte blanche to do what they're proud of anymore. You know, now marketing and sales are running everything and maybe or maybe not you're spending as much time on true R&D and and true innovation and true, you know, making things from the heart. So a lot of them left and um, they had, you know, maybe five to 10 years left in their careers where they, they were like, I didn't want to go out like that. Um, I want to do something that I'm really proud of and that I really love. And so when I met them through, you know, various networks and I told them I want to make something pure and true and real that, that really honors Japanese culture, but I can't do that without Japanese scientists at the heart of it. And what I can tell you is I'll never limit your cost of goods. I'll never tell you how to formulate. I just want you to make the best thing in the world for our clients. To them, that's that's music to their ears. And then I say, I'll figure out a way on the back end without bothering you to sell it and market it in a way that's never going to impact the quality of the products. You just, you just make what you're proud of. And then they actually started coming out of the woodworks and then they started bringing their friends Wow. Yeah. That's really great. It was really, really great. So it seems like, you know, everything is going smoothly. You found a team to really help bring these products that you envisioned to life. But at that point, no one was really talking about Asian skincare Mm -hmm. and clean beauty. So when you were beginning to really launch the company, what did the early days of Tatcha look like? Um, With the exception of Sephora, it was just like a big fat no across the board. You know, sort of every retailer that we reached out to, every PR agency, you name it, it was just like a big fat no thank you. And Sephora was the only one, and it was it was this one incredible buyer there, you know, Cindy Diley and, and Priya Venkatesh, who were just very, they were always looking around the corner. They can always sort of see what other people can't see. They were the only people who said, I believe in what you're doing. Um, and I, it just took me five years to get big enough to even play with them because, you know, they're, they're the big girls. Um, but it was just a lot of no, just a lot of doors slamming in the face. Yeah, the first five years seem pretty difficult for the company. You know, you weren't initially in those larger retailers, like you said. But I did read a funny story where you had mentioned you accidentally zeroed out all the pricing on the website. And still, you know, in the early days, nobody was buying the product then. So how did you really gain that growth and the momentum that you needed in the first five years of the company? The good news is, is that while the retailers and PR agencies said, I don't think that there's any interest in this concept in America. Nobody thinks that, you know, Asian beauty is aspirational. Nobody cares about skincare. 
certainly nobody cares about Asian skincare. Um, the truth was they were wrong. And so we were really lucky because editors and makeup artists um, who are, I think, much closer to the client and much closer to the product, they loved what they were seeing and they spread the word amongst themselves. And then once we had this little core group of clients, our clients brought us our next clients, brought us our next clients. It's always been organic word of mouth, always. And I hope it always is. Um, and that's how we grew. And, you know, that's that's beautiful to hear because I'm sure when you're getting all the no's, it could be challenging to just continue. But if you have that core base of customers, no matter how big they are, I'm sure that was a motivation for you just to keep going and pushing and pushing. Yes. And also the no doesn't really mean much after a while. In the beginning, like the first few no's hurt. And then after that, it just sounds like white noise. You just expect it. So it doesn't at least for me, you kind of get calloused. <laughs> you don't feel it anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's actually pretty true. You do get numb to it after a while. But on the in the earlier days, when you took it more personally, you know, what really helped you kind of push through and push the business along when you were hearing so many no's and it was impacting you? Our clients, oh, we have the best clients in the world and some of them have become my best friends. And so to me, a brand is a promise. And when they said to me, when your package arrives, I feel like my best friend from afar sent me something because they miss me and they love me. And then after I used you know, this ritual for a couple of weeks, it's changing how I feel about myself. It's changing how I feel in my own skin. That is such a beautiful, deep human connection to make with someone, even if you'll never get to meet them in person. And... Um, that to me was one of the most meaningful, beautiful parts of this experience is that I feel like I've got thousands of friends, like real friends um, who've let me become a part of their lives in, in a really intimate way that I would have never been able to do otherwise. Um, when I walk down the street and, and I find out, you know, before COVID that somebody is a client, like I am all over them. There's just hugs, there's kisses, there's tears. Cause I'm just so happy. Um, to be able to be a part of their lives. I love hearing that. And the fact that you said your brand is a promise and how you've really built this connection with your clients. And it's incredible to hear the impact that you're making in their lives. And I'm sure that is such a big motivator for you to really push through those lowest moments and those difficult times. So even, you know, as a company now, you guys are quite large. You still definitely have that focus on the customers and it's beautiful. We exist to serve our clients. So the, the day that you take your eye off the ball and stop prioritizing your clients, you should shut your doors and go do something else. Don't do it if you don't care about your clients. That's so true and such good advice. <laughs> so going back to the earlier days of the company, you were doing whatever it took to really get this product in front of people. And five years in, you got into Sephora, but you also have an interesting story with QVC. Can you share more about how you entered QVC and really its impact to the company? Yes. Um, QVC, I went on thanks to this one incredible buyer, Kristen Hafner, who's a consultant now. So if anybody wants to go on QVC, I highly recommend hiring her. But she was the buyer at the time, and she was the only one who would give me the time of day to sit down and have a meeting. No one else. Everyone else was just like, this is too exotic a niche. Um, but she gave me the time of day, and um, she let me go on air with this amazing host, Lisa Robertson. 
And we sold out of everything in eight minutes, I think. Um, and she did more in eight minutes than what we had done in months combined, you know, in all of our retail channels and Tasha.com. Um, so that, that was really, really, really eye-opening. And uh, they became really fantastic partners. Wow, that's pretty incredible to sell out in eight minutes and do more in revenue than the company did as a whole in, you know, a few months. That's pretty remarkable. But at that point, you know, the company was still growing. You guys were still strapped for cash. So anything that you did, you know, like QVC and getting the product in different places had a huge impact on the company and the existence. So how was were you nervous going on QVC or, you know, what was that experience like knowing where the company was? I would, I was nervous. Um, not because of the camera bit. It doesn't really feel like you're on camera there. You're in a quiet room and there's a box that's facing you. But aside from that, it's like, you're just having a conversation with a friend. Um, but I was nervous because at that point in the company, every single thing that I did was a bet the farm move. And so every single time I went on QVC, if I hit my numbers, I can pay salary. If I don't hit my numbers, I'm not going to make salary. And um, I never wanted to not make payroll. That's uh, probably my hope. My employees never knew about it. Thank God. But that's what kept me up for the first eight years of am I going to hit payroll? Am I going to hit payroll? Am I going to hit payroll? Yeah, I mean, and I have goosebumps just hearing that. And I, I know from your perspective, you didn't take a salary for the longest time. So how did you really fund the growth? I know you made some changes and moved in with your parents, but can you kind of walk us through, you know, how you thought about funding, why you wanted to not really raise outside capital mm -hmm. um, and just the sacrifices that you really took at that time? Yeah, um, because I had gone to business school, I came from finance, my husband came from finance, my partner, Brad Murray, who's incredible, came from finance and private equity specifically. We, we sort of knew too much and um, we knew that it would be hard to build a company in our vision that was purpose-driven, um, that gives back, um, that wasn't obvious on a piece of paper why it was going to work. Um, we knew that if we went the institutional financing route too early, that the intention would be watered down. And so um, Brad joined a couple years in and he ran all the financing and did an incredible job. We led pretty much every raise ourselves. So we set the price, we set the parameters and we put the money in. And then when we couldn't afford it anymore because um, his, you know, his wife is an entrepreneur and but he'd gotten his parents, his wife's parents, my parents, like we just clean out the coffers of all the families and none of us came from wealth, but we all just took the risk. Um, when we clean out the coffers, then our leadership team was incredible and they're still with us today. And they were the first investors. When we tapped out on them, um, you know, our, our immediate team around us became our investors. Um, whether it was our creative agency, our lawyer, like everybody who was a part of the day-to-day -day business trying to make it work, they all put their money in and supported it. It wasn't until um, the last few years where the capital needs because of the growth rate were far bigger than what we could do on our own. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't until the last few years where our growth rate um, meant that our capital needs were increasing to the point beyond what we could handle organically between friends and family and a couple angel investors that we realized, you know, okay, now's the time to go to private equity for a growth round. And even then we made sure it was a minority deal so that we still called the shots for the most part. Um, and that's how, how it went. 
Yeah, I think it's helpful to hear the way you guys thought about fundraising and why it was so important for you to maintain control because of the specific essence and intention of what you were trying to build. But what was also interesting when I was prepping for the interview is that you had this incredible clientele, uh, many famous women and celebrities who were using Tatcha at that point, but you were you know, still not getting paid. Mm-hmm. You didn't get paid for nine years of the company. And you know, you moved in with your parents at that point and brought your family in there. I lived in my parents' house um, for seven years and we only moved, I, I took... I took my first salary in the ninth year. Um, I mean, before that, I, I took I took like a thousand dollars, maybe, and then I think I worked my up, way up to twelve thousand a year. I remember it was funny because there was this movement going on around that time when it was people were you know, looking at how much the CEO of any company was paid versus their lowest paid, and they're like, you know, the ratio shouldn't ever be more than X Y Z. And I was like, but what if the CEO is the lowest paid in the company? Then then how does that go? <laughs> So yeah, I was in my parents' house until we did the private equity round. Wow, that's pretty amazing to hear because it wasn't that long ago. And the fact that you you know, really made that sacrifice to move in with your parents, to save money and just reinvest every dollar into the business, even when you were doing well, is really impressive. And I think it's something that we hear a lot with the women on our podcast who decide to not raise money from institutional investors pretty early on because they really want to build the company the way they've envisioned it. And, you know, going down that, whether it's VC route or private equity route, it's definitely a different ballgame. Indeed. I think there's there's no right or wrong. There's lots of great companies that were fueled by institutional capital, whether it's VC or private equity um, or strategics. But I think that your choices need to be internally consistent. And mm-hmm. so your financing strategy, your product strategy, your distribution strategy, and your intentions as a company, your values, your culture, what you want to accomplish, if these things are not internally consistent, that's when it starts falling apart. Um, because you know your investors want high growth and high returns and high earnings and high this, but your business model is has more stakeholders and, and more things that you're trying to accomplish than just growth rate and EBITDA and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't think that there's better or worse, but there is certainly the risk of making choices that are not internally consistent. Mm-hmm. No, that's super helpful. And thanks for walking through that. Mm-hmm. So once you raised the institutional capital that you mentioned, I know there was a point where they wanted to bring in a quote unquote real CEO. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see this often um, in that space. But how did you feel about that? And how has the evolution of the way you think of yourself as a CEO and leader really changed? Good question. I still ponder it. Um I think that the reason that um, they advocated it, it wasn't all of them. It was just this one operating partner. Um, The reason that he advocated for getting a real CEO um, was because they were looking out for their financial return. They didn't see the profitability profile that they wanted to from the company. And they felt that um, someone who was very seasoned and, and who had seen this movie before could take the company um, financially to another level that perhaps I couldn't. Um, and the truth is, you know, every founder in their portfolio, for the most part, was asked to step down. And they had maybe 20, 20 
portfolio companies. So I don't take it personally at all. It was just sort of their model. You know, they invest, founders are out. Um, the thing that I appreciate about it, though, while I, while I don't appreciate the way that it was presented to me and, and how it made me go into a confidence freefall, I do appreciate that it did lead me to hire a CEO who I think the world of who does have skills that I could have learned, um, but is not really my highest and best use at this point. At this point, my highest and best use of the company is to um, focus on innovation, customer service, um, the integrity of the culture. It's hard to do those things and also do all the CEO stuff. You know, And CEO stuff is you've got taxes, you've got a corporate parent to talk to, you've got distribution agreements to, you know, all the nitty gritty stuff of running the day-to-day company. You know, it's, it, it's done best by someone who's really passionate about that. And, and while I was good at it, um, my passion has always been the clients and the formulas and the intention and the giving back. So it freed me up to do what I love. So I don't regret in any way the outcome. I regret the way that it happened. Um, and what I didn't say in my other interview was that year, so I, I said, okay, fine, I will go hire a real CEO. And then it takes about a year to do that because you've got to run a search and then recruit this person and then they probably have garden leave for a while. So you just wait a year. In the year between when I agreed to hire a CEO and when he got there, I, I figured I'm just going to have fun now. I'm just, I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to do everything that I ever wanted to do for the company. This is my last kind of hurrah as CEO. I'm going to do what I want, how I want, when I want. And I'm not going to worry about what people think of me or whether they, they think it's a good idea because who cares? I'm not going to be CEO and you know, the countdown has begun anyways. And that was the most transformational year for the company. Um, every year up until that point, we had grown at least 40%, but that year we grew over 80%, I think 85%. Up until that point, um, we had not been profitable. And some of it is because, you know, I, I didn't have a good handle on, on my finance guy. Um, and when I asked them for reports and to change things, they just, this one guy just refused to do it. He would literally say, I got your request and it's not worth my time. Um, and as a female CEO who didn't want to be seen as a difficult female leader, I never pushed back. Um, and so I was flying blind without even proper financial reporting the last few years of the company. So no wonder we weren't profitable. Um, and then that last year when I was like, you know, handcuffs off, I'm going to run this thing the way I think it should have been run this whole time. You know, we spiked into profitability. We became one of the top selling brands in Sephora. Just everything worked. And then when our new CEO showed up, I was so proud to be able to hand over the keys to this hot little sports car full of fuel. Um, and I, I was proud to be able to hand off something that was in a great place. Um, and then he's done a beautiful job with it. So I have no regrets. And if anything, that year, that year before I handed the, the keys over, it was the, it was the first year I think I had joy running the company because I had a freedom to not worry about what people thought and failing because there's no downside at that point. So I ultimately appreciate it. I just don't like the way it happened because I don't want other female leaders and other founders who are just fully capable of 
being the leader for as long as they want to be, to be told that they should step down because of their age, because they're minorities, because they're women, you know, because they haven't done this before. That's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. And it's pretty incredible to just see how in your situation, when you kind of got out of your own way and you stopped really caring about pleasing people and, you know, having everybody like you, quote unquote, as a CEO, you really flourished. You know, your company grew even more. You had a handle on your finances and really brought the company into profitability, which is huge. So really to see your potential when you don't get in your own way, I think for me is just so helpful to hear because so many of us do that. You know, looking back at that moment, what advice do you have for other women founders or CEOs who are, you know, really still struggling with that likability aspect of leading their teams and businesses? I think that business is not brain surgery. And anybody who tries to make it seem like brain surgery is um, pulling the wool over your eyes. Ultimately, it's about knowing your client and serving your client in the best way that you can, and then making sure that you're financed to keep the car running because finance is like fuel in a car. It's not that complicated. It requires a lot of stamina and it requires a lot of um, luck and a lot of self-conviction. But mostly you just have to keep showing up every day. And if anybody tells you, you can't do it, you don't have what it takes, um, you know, you need to hire a real XYZ, always be open open to the learnings, be honest with yourself, intellectually honest with yourself. But if you know that you've got it, you know, and, and there's no reason for somebody to say that, especially when the proof is in the pudding, you've got results. Don't, don't let anybody knock you off your horse. Um, that is my only regret in 11 years of the company. That's so powerful to hear. And I appreciate you just really reflecting and sharing you know, the wisdom from just your own personal experience. For sure. So to fast forward 10 years into the company, you ended up selling Tatcha to Unilever for a reported $500 million. Did you ever think that you would have an exit that big? Or did you ever anticipate that you were going to even sell the company at some point? It was never the goal um, to sell the company. But once you take private equity or institutional capital, you have to you have to give the money back at some point. And there's only a few ways to give the money back. You either earn so much money that you can buy them out, you go public, or you have to go to somebody else who buys out their, their share. Um, so once we took private equity money, we put ourselves on a very specific path. Um, so I, I had about a year or so to get used to the idea of we have to do something <laughs> to return the capital. Um, and I thought about, does it make sense to go public? Does it make sense? What are the various ways that we can, we can bring this to resolution? Um, what I love about for us going with a strategic is I created something that I, I love and I put my heart and my soul into it and I wanted to outlive me. And um, ending up with a strategic, especially with one that is aligned from a values perspective and they know what you're trying to create and they honor that is the greatest thing that I can do to make sure that the company outlives me. And so I'm filled with gratitude that it was something that we were able to do because um, you know, now I don't have to worry about whether my people are going to get payroll. And that's something I worried about every day of the week until this was, this was done. 
I'm sure this is the first time you can really take a breath because you know that payroll is always going to be met every week and it's something that's you know no longer top of mind for you but also how incredible to really align with a larger company who can help take your brand to the next level and really help maintain that legacy that you know will ultimately outlive you so I know we're getting close to time and I could probably talk to you for much, much longer, but I want to close with one question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. What does wealth mean to you at this point in your life? When I was younger, I assumed that wealth equaled happiness. Um, then I went nine years with no money, like literally nobody. <laughs> And I realized that um, I don't need stuff to be happy, that not having stuff has never made me feel like I was lacking. And then having stuff never made me feel whole and happy. Um, so then I started really trying to think a lot more about purpose and happiness. And there's actually a phenomenal documentary called Happy, I think. And um, it's about a study out of Stanford on um, ways that people are able to affect their um, kind of steady state of happiness. And they, they studied all sorts of different things. And of course, some of it ended up back in Japan. Um, but what I realized is for me, the things in that documentary um, that really drive your happiness as a human being include how often you're in flow state. You know, are you doing work? You know, it gives you purpose. Um, do you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself? Um, are are you able to give back, you know, altruism or supporting your community is a hugely important way to feel good. Um, so even just selfishly give back, it'll, it'll feel good, you know? (laughs) Um, but all of, all of these things that, that help really drive the overall state of happiness for a person, according to research, uh, money only plays a part in that up into, you know, I think $65,000 at that time. And um, because th- that was what you need to get your basic comforts taken care of, you know, a house, health insurance, food, education in this country. And then beyond that number, and I don't remember the exact number, but I think it was around there, um, more money didn't bring you more happiness. And I can, I can tell you as somebody who had negative 800,000 and someone who is more than that now, it has, never, it has never changed my happiness. What has made me happy was feeling deeply connected to other people, to feel like I can be in service to people, to be able to see a problem out there and know that I can do something to fix it, um, either through, you know, my resources or through leadership, you know, whatever it takes, I'll do it. So that's how I frame my life now and happiness. And so what does wealth mean? I think, you know, health is wealth. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you, Vicky, for joining us. We're just so honored to have you on our show today and just leaving so inspired. Well, I love what you're doing and I love that you are pursuing your passion and that you are also trying to lift and support other entrepreneurs and other female leaders um, along with you. I think we must lift each other. And so thank you for the honor of sharing our story with you because I think our story is everybody's story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. 
To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.